0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as the college pastor here at Faith Church. And for those of you who don't know me, my wife Hannah and I have been attending Faith Church the last two and a half years or so. We're both students at Michigan State, and I was talking to one of my professors one day, Dr. Kimberly Meyer, and she's like, hey, you should come out and check out Faith Church. We're having a Christmas service. And two and a half years later, we're still here. I'm on staff, for better or for worse. So that whole inviting people to church thing, it works sometimes. Sometimes the people you invite to church end up serving in pretty significant ways. Um, we have a son, a 16-month-year-old named Leonardo. His, uh, we call him Leo for short. I didn't show a picture of him at the 9 o'clock service, but there was pretty high demand for it. So here it is. There we go. I'm just going to leave this up here for a few minutes. You can look at that. There you go. You can clap if you want. You can enjoy some of this Leo action, the whole spit and everything. My family's over there, so you hear the clapping over there. Anyway, so uh, I uh, served as a youth pastor, as a community life pastor, as a lead pastor for a few years, and I love preaching and teaching God's Word, just proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. So it's just a pleasure to be here with you all this morning. So uh, before I get into the text, I want to give you a bit of a sense of how I'm approaching the text and make an observation about some things I've seen throughout church history as well as what I see here in the church today. So you can say goodbye to Leo for now. Anyway, so I'm going to show you. This is the first few lines of the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a summary of what we as Christians believe to be true based on God's Word. It's what's guided the church the past 16th centuries. And uh, it helps us make sense of what the Bible teaches about God. And I just want to read to you a little bit of this. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And after that, he says that he went on to go, you know, rise from the dead for our sins and all that good stuff. Now, if you're a Christian, this is what you believe. But notice what's missing here. So after he was born of the Virgin Mary and before he suffered under Pontius Pilate, Jesus lived 33 years on this earth. Three of which were devoted to preaching, teaching, proclaiming the good news, healing the sick, feeding the poor. As the church, we love to talk about baby Jesus. Eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. Because that means that hope has come into the world that we celebrate at Christmas time. Then a few months later, we celebrate Good Friday, which is where we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross for our sins. Then a couple days later, we celebrate Easter, where we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead and us with Him too, so we can have new life, new hope, and salvation. But oftentimes we overlook the teachings of Jesus because, frankly, they're tough to understand. And honestly, they're tough to follow. Jesus challenges us in so many ways that when we read the Gospels, accounts of his life, we get uncomfortable because Jesus' message is one of radical peace, liberation, and discipleship that grates on our modern ears a bit. It's much easier to read a psalm or a letter of Paul than it is to dig deep into the Gospels where Jesus calls us to follow him as his disciples. And candidly, I would argue that it's easier to believe in Jesus than it is to follow him. Now, this is a bit controversial, so let me explain. So Pastor Kirk has talked a little bit about demon faith. Even the demons believe and they tremble, but they don't trust in him. I think it's easy for us as Christians to trust in Jesus. It's a lot harder for us to follow Jesus. But Jesus has said that if we want to be his disciples, we need to follow him, and it's not going to be an easy road. So this morning, we're going to be diving into a passage of scripture that many of us know by heart, but challenges us in some pretty significant ways. It's something that you've probably read over and over again. You've probably heard it quoted a million times. It's in Luke chapter 10. But just to give you a little bit of context for this story, Jesus has just sent out the 72 disciples to proclaim the good news. He's given them authority on heaven and on earth to stomp on snakes and scorpions, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. But Jesus knows that even though people will see signs and wonders from his disciples, very few are actually going to believe in his message. At the end of this whole exchange, Luke tells us this. He says, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, people throughout history have been awaiting the coming of the King, the Christ, the Messiah, and they haven't seen it yet. He's not only talking about people throughout Jewish history, but also the people of his present time as well. In other words, there are people who are awaiting the Messiah, yet whose hearts blind them to the truth of who Jesus is and his message. And then immediately after this, Luke goes into our passage for this morning. It says, On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now when Luke refers to an expert in the law, he's referring to a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were sort of the religious elite. They were the leaders of the day. They were like a pastor mixed with a scholar, mixed with a teacher, mixed with an attorney, mixed with a city council person. And they oversaw a Jewish religious life in those days. And it was pretty common for people of this stature to engage in some debates, to spar a little bit, like this expert wants to do with Jesus. But as we see throughout the Gospels, this particular group of people, the Pharisees, they're very skeptical of Jesus' message. They're very skeptical of the claims of who he is. And this religious expert, whose name we don't even know, is no exception. This is a guy who's trying to trap Jesus on his understanding of God's word. So Jesus decides to chop it up with him and play his game. He says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He just throws it right back at him, right? He says, He answered, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and lo- with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a pretty typical answer, something you'd expect to hear from an expert in the law. The first part about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is from the book of Deuteronomy. It was a core teaching of the Jewish faith. But the second part of the verse is from a book called Leviticus, which is nobody's favorite book, by the way. He quotes Leviticus chapter 17, verse 18, which says this. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbors as yourself, I am the Lord. Together, these two verses constitute what was known as the Great Commandment back in those days. Now, what's interesting is that the books that these verses are from, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, were among the first five books of the Old Testament. That doesn't make any sense now. It's not too important right now, but it will make sense later. But for the teacher of the law to answer the specific way that he did wasn't anything profound or anything, it wasn't terribly insightful. It was just a basic answer that you would have expect someone to know. But Jesus' response is pretty simple as well. He says, you've answered correctly. You've got it right. Do this and you will live. So this is pretty straightforward teaching thus far. How do you achieve eternal life? You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. And as a result, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God has always demanded of his people. And this is what Jesus demands of us today. But the episode takes a bit of a strange turn. The teacher decides to say something, to ask a question that gives us a clue as to what's in his heart. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor now when the text says that the teacher of the law is trying to justify himself it means that he's trying to justify his understanding of the law you see back then the tradition of the rabbis was to teach that yes in order to be a true follower of Yahweh the living God you had to love your neighbor as yourself but your neighbor didn't include a group of people called the sinners This idea led some religious people to think that they could live their lives in their own small community, not have to engage with people they called the sinners, the unclean. The law of the Old Testament exhorted Jews to keep pure, not to touch things that looked like death or even could lead to death. And their interpretation of the law was that you needed to steer steer, clear not only of unclean dead things, but of unclean people as well. So what the teacher is saying is, come on, you're not actually saying that my neighbor is a sinner or an unclean person, are you? This whole exchange leads Jesus to tell a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, what we have to understand here is that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it wasn't the yellow brick road. In fact, this is one of the most sketchy, kind of dangerous places to be in the entire ancient world. In fact, it was often called the bloody pass because of the way that robbers would take advantage of unsuspecting passerbys, rob them, kill them if they had to, and steal from them. The way the road meandered and curved made people susceptible to people robbing them and abusing them. Now this man on the side of the road who's been broken, beaten, abused, he probably knew the risks of walking on the road. Yet he went anyway. Jesus goes on to say, A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, so just so y'all are aware, the priests and Levites are among the most holy, most revered men in all of the land. They were the ones that performed the ritual sacrifices on behalf of the people. They kept themselves pure because they held so tightly to the law of Moses. And here they are, these holy, revered men who follow God better than anybody. They just passed by this guy on the side of the road. Now, some commentators will say, That maybe these holy men thought that the guy actually was dead. Actually, it says he was half dead. He could have been dead. Who knows? And because the man was probably dead, these religious leaders didn't want to make themselves ceremonially unclean. But that interpretation isn't right, because it says they were heading back from Jerusalem. Their duties at the temple were finished. They didn't need to worry about being ceremonially or ritually unclean. That interpretation isn't really right. And, other, and the other commentators will say that these guys saw the half dead man and they thought, well, you know, there's probably robbers around here. I got to get out of here. And what Jesus is getting at here is that there's a man on the side of the road. He's bloody. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's been tortured. He's been robbed. And the holiest of men don't even bother to see if he's alive or not. In other words, they're not the people who love their neighbors as themselves. Now, I imagine the religious teacher is like, yeah, Jesus, you know, those guys are horrible people. I wouldn't do that. High five, we're all good, right? No, that's not, what he, that's not what happens. What Jesus says next is even more scandalous. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now when we read that story with our modern ears, it really lacks the same kind of punch that it would have had in Jesus' day. You see, Jews and Samaritans were sworn enemies of each other. This wasn't like a Michigan-Michigan state thing. This wasn't a Democrat-Republican thing. This was a blood rivalry. If you were a Samaritan, your mere existence was offensive to the Jews. Just to give you a bit of history, Samaritans were of mixed-blood ancestry. They were part Gentile, part Jew. And they worshipped the same God, Yahweh, but they believed only at the first five books of the Bible— like Deuteronomy, like Leviticus, were inspired by God. But the biggest thing that separated the Samaritans and the Jews was that the Samaritans believed that the mountain upon which Abraham sacrificed Isaac back in Genesis was a place called Mount Gerizim. And the Jews believed that the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, tried to sacrifice Isaac, was on Mount Zion. So, the Jews built their temple on Mount Zion. The Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim, and they each went their own ways, developed their own practices, their own rituals, their own religious belief systems. Now, for the Jews, the Samaritans were second class citizens. You get some of this in the, the Gospels as well. Think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus' disciples are like, no, you better not talk to that Samaritan woman. But remember, they didn't even want Jesus to go into Samaria because of how much they hated the Samaritans. Even in the chapter before this passage, we see some Samaritans hating on some Jews, including Jesus' disciples. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus could use any example here. He could talk about the good prostitute. He could talk about the good Gentile. He could talk about the good tax collector, the good emperor, the good sinner, the good unclean person, whatever. Any one of those would have been really offensive to the teacher of the law. But he talks about the good Samaritan for a reason. You see, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus knows our hearts and our minds. He knows our intentions, our motivations. And I think that Jesus knows that this particular teacher of the law hates Samaritans above all else. And what's ironic about this whole story is that this Samaritan, this unholy person, This unclean person, this sinner, this guy who wasn't even a true follower of Yahweh, he was the one that walked up to the apparently dead man and cared for him. The crazy thing here, like I said, is that the Samaritan only had the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. He knew the great commandment. He had the same set of books as this religious leader, this teacher of the law. And yet he knew that it was his responsibility as a follower of God, of Yahweh, to check on this man and see if he was alive and to take care of him. Most importantly, he knew that God's word teaches that everybody is created in his image, worthy of dignity, respect, and love. Now notice when Jesus asks this teacher, Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The teacher of the law says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say that it was the Samaritan. That his sworn racial, ethnic, religious enemy was right about the law of God. And of course, what does Jesus say? He says, go and do likewise. Pretty simple. Now, how do we make this whole exchange here? Like, how do, we make sense? how do we make sense of this whole exchange here? There's a couple ways that you could look at it, all pretty interesting, pretty compelling. Some have said that Jesus is the good Samaritan, that he rescues the broken, the half-dead, the harassed, the abused, the downtrodden, the marginalized. He takes care of them. He loves his neighbor even when we fail. Some have said that Jesus is the innkeeper, And that the good Samaritan is us, followers of Jesus, who lead others to Jesus so that he can heal them, restore them, give them life abundant and life eternal. In fact, the one interpretation that I like best is that Jesus is the man on the side of the road. He's beaten, he's tortured, and he's bruised. The religious people, the ones who think they know God the best, just pass over him. And it's the least religious people, the ones who don't get it, the Samaritans that know Jesus for who he is, the Son of God. Now, let me make a couple points here. Sometimes the most religious people are least likely to understand God. Now, I've been there, and I'm pretty sure that you all have been there. Sometimes you think you've got God all figured out, and then he surprises you. And that's what you see happening here. This is a teacher in the law. He's been to school for all these things, and yet Jesus completely schools him on the demands of God. Even if you've been following Jesus for decades, you still have a lot to learn. I know I have a lot to learn. That's why we need accountability. That's why we need to dig our noses into God's word. That's why we need prayer more than ever, because otherwise we're going to get cemented in our ways, and that's where you find trouble. You know, we like to give the Pharisees, these religious leaders, a hard time, but we forget that this is a group of people who were enslaved. They were exiled. They've been persecuted because of their faith. They've always had to live under the rule of unjust kings and emperors. They tried so hard to follow God and his demands, yet over time, their certainty about God blinded them to who Jesus was and who Je- what Jesus' message was. Maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you have to be doing some repenting. But I think the passage also shows us that sometimes the least religious people are more likely to understand God. Now hear me out here because this is a bit more controversial. I've known people who don't believe in God, in fact, who might even hate God, who have schooled me on what Jesus has told us in the Gospels. I know people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't have any faith commitment, who have taught me, who have convinced me of certain teachings in the epistles of Paul. And I've gotten degrees in this stuff. I've been to school for these things. This Samaritan in the story, someone of even a different faith tradition than Jesus himself, grasps the commands of God. And the priests and the Levites just don't. Maybe this is you. You are so close to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life today. So what? What's the bottom line? As I've said, there's a bunch of different ways that you can interpret this passage. You could say, well, we all should just be like the Good Samaritan or whatever. But I want to bring the point home for those of us who call ourselves Christians. We want to be the Good Samaritan. But most of the time, we're the Pharisees who ask, love who? We do this, don't we? We pay lip service to the idea of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We try to twist our way out of this. I'm talking about the things that we post on Facebook. I'm talking about the judgments that we make prematurely on other people. I'm talking about the ways that we rationalize ourselves out of loving our neighbor as ourselves in order to maintain some sort of superiority or even separation from our neighbor. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about the person you love the most and you can't live without. It could be your wife, your husband, your son or daughter, your mom, your dad if you really shallow your tv my wife would say it's my computer now i want you to think about the person you can't stand at all it could be a neighbor it could be a coworker someone who looks different than you now open them who is your neighbor the person you love the person you hate and everyone in between in other words who are the people that you that we need to love It's the person that voted differently than you a few years ago. It's your friend who's an atheist. It's your family member who identifies with the LGBTQ community. It's the coworker with the Quran on his desk. It's the undocumented worker who's cooking your food. It's the person who's been victimized time and again by people in the church who wants absolutely nothing to do with you or your God. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. These are our neighbors. Now we can acknowledge this with our minds, but our actions are a different story. The Good Samaritan just doesn't say to the dude, hey man, hope you feel better. He doesn't say, well, you got yourself into this mess, only you can get yourself out of this mess. Best of luck. No, 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 no. He goes the extra mile, he ensures that all this man's needs are taken care of. And we need to ask ourselves, what do we do when we come across people who are suffering from personal and social injustices? I'm reminded of these words in 1 John. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And John goes on to say that whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. He also says this, he says, Whoever claims to love God Yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. These are tough words, frankly. And I don't think any of us can ask, but who is my neighbor after reading these words? If we... At Faith Church, we want to be a community that lives to give ourselves away so that others can come to know Jesus. The message of the gospel and our lives need to look the same. They've got to go hand in hand. If we tell other people about how much they need to know Jesus but don't look a thing like him, our message is lost. No one is going to believe us. Our mission begins and ends with love. It means giving money to ministries that care for those in need. It means using whatever gifts and resources that we have in the church and the local community. It means stepping outside our comfort zones and loving others that we've struggled to love, even if our friends and family shun us, because Jesus demands it. Martin Luther King Jr. made these observations about this parable. He says, I imagine that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? I want to challenge you this morning. Love who? Everybody. Not in some wishy-washy, sentimental way, Love people boldly. Love people tangibly because that's what Jesus has called us to do. And frankly, I believe that we have the best example to follow. Today, we're taking communion. And communion is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. How he's paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future. And if we believe in him, if we put our trust in Jesus, we'll have life abundant now and life eternal later. The parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us not only of our responsibility to love others, but the ways in which that God has first loved us. As I pray, the worship team will begin to come up. And as we begin to worship, I'd invite you to go to one of the communion stations around the sanctuary. Take a piece of the bread, symbolizing the broken body of Christ. And take the cup, symbolizing His shed blood, blood shed for our sins. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you just to remain sitting, enjoy the worship. But if you choose to take communion, I want to encourage you to think about what God has done for you in the past, what he's doing for you now in the present, and what he will do for you in the future. Think about the ways that he is calling you to love other people as he has first loved us. Maybe we need to be doing some repenting. Maybe there's people that we know in our hearts and our minds that we haven't done a good job loving. This time is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. The love that he's shown for us on the cross and the love that he demands that we have for other people. Jesus came, died, rose again. If we put our faith, hope, and trust in him, he will save us and give us life abundant and life eternal. That's the gospel. That is good news. Jesus has loved us so that we can love others better and with abandon. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways that we fall short the ways that we don't obey the great commandment, the ways that we don't love you the way you deserve to be loved, and the ways that we don't love our neighbors the way they deserve to be loved. Lord, please forgive us of the ways that we fall short in love. But we thank you because you have provided a path back to you. You have provided a way by which we can begin to love others. If there's any here who are looking for your love, Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself to them, that they would know you and get a taste of that abundant life that you promised us. And if there's people here who need to be doing some repenting, Lord, you will forgive them. And I pray that you'll empower all of us to be agents of redemption and love in this world that's marred by brokenness and hate. Help us to be your disciples because that's what you've called us to do. We love you, Father, because you first loved us. Help us to love others in the ways that you've shown us that you love all people. We pray this in the great and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.